0: to Glossinomia, conversations about the sounds of speech. I'm Phil Thompson, and here, of course, is Eric Armstrong. Hey, Eric. Hey there, how are you? I'm doing really, really well. Uh, I haven't seen you since we did our live podcast from uh, Vasta in Chicago, which was a lot of fun. It was.
1: Good turnout.
0: Yeah, it was really nice to actually see the people and to be in the same room as them. Uh, And I hope that that sort of expanded our... Listener base a little bit as well.
1: Yes. yes. So so if you're listening for the first time since the live show, welcome.
0: Welcome. Today we're going to talk about dress, the dress lexical set. And uh, as we were chatting about beforehand, it's a bit of a, a sticky territory, partially because there's some confusion. There's some confusion in the phonetic practice. But also, there's a. We're going to encounter other lexical sets as we go through our work talking about this lexical set.
1: Should we just uh, give a little heads up? The dress, as a lexical set, is what we call a checked
0: vowel. Yes, that's true, and. It's also a short vowel, and these two things are often the same in English, but uh, they aren't. We're we're describing a different characteristic in that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Checked simply means that uh, there's always something after. There's always a consonant after it. And intuitively, it makes a lot of sense that that vowel doesn't get to flow onward. It's been stopped or checked by some consonant. The gate is closed afterwards. It's also a great example because check is checked. It's the dress vowel with a nice firm stop, actually two of them afterwards. Yeah. Uh, so the word itself exemplifies it.
1: Um, and Phil, clarify for me this, this term. Sometimes you hear phoneticians use it or phonologists, probably phonologists. They throw around the terms tense versus lax. Yeah. It's not about going to the spa and having a relaxed <laughs> day with your vowel.
0: What, it, what is that about? Yeah, it's it's really it's another confusing issue. But on the basic articulatory level, uh, the tone of your musculature is different between tense and lax. Or you could also say that on the outside, to reach to the outside of the vowel chart, you need a little bit more physical energy and more tension and when you move towards schwa in the middle, you are lax, you relax in towards the middle. It's also true that in the case of this vowel and others, uh, the term is sometimes conflated with length, that, as we've said many times before, quality and quantity are different things. But uh, Daniel Jones uh, used a length mark to distinguish between tense and lax forms. Right. Under the assumption, and it's a reasonable assumption in English, that uh, a relaxed vowel is going to have shorter duration, and that a tense one, because it's tense, because it's in a prominent position, will have a longer duration, because more energy has been put into it. But we can separate all three of these things out and say that uh, a vowel could be short or long, it could be tense or lax, and it could also be checked or unchecked. Right. And so in the case of dress, uh, it is checked, that is to say nowhere in English is it not followed by a consonant. There are no words like bé, je, blè, although mè is a, a, I'd say that could be called English and that's certainly Me. unchecked, mè. Uh, the uh, the length of it in English is almost always short. Uh, that is to say, and I know we've said this a lot of times before, you go to town, you could lengthen that as long as you want. I'm going to bed. That's fine. But the way it usually operates in English is that it's shorter in duration. Uh, and then what's the third one? Length. Oh, tense and lax. Right. So it's going to be lax. Yeah, and everywhere, and that means that it's slightly towards the center of the vowel chart. In a way, the vowel chart sort of does this work for us, (laughs) that it sticks out further in the front. uh, Or you could say that even if I kept the most tense form of my front vowels, I'm going to be moving... Closer to schwa, just because as I move from an arched tongue position to a flat tongue position to a cupped tongue position, the point of focus is going to be moving backwards. Uh, because I, my, probably because my jaw is a little further back on the bottom, but also because I've got to get the whole mass of muscle further back in order to do the cupping action. It's just the mechanics
1: of how the tongue works or
0: doesn't. Exactly. Uh, So, E is way, way up there. It's fronter. There's a natural movement backwards of the tongue position as it goes from arched to cupped. Mm -hmm. However, and this is a distinction that I think uh, we can make beyond saying that simply a quality of the vowel that e is lax, you could make a tense e. You could keep all of those features of of muscular tension e, e, e. It's just usually partially because it's short, partially because it's, uh, yeah, because it's short it tends to not develop as much tension. It's also true though that in my accent my dress is pretty (laughs) relaxed towards the center as well. So I might be moving it even further back than you or or an RP speaker might.
1: Now, I'm
0: under the opinion that there are
1: phonologists who use these terms tense and lax to mean mostly it belongs to this group. Um, That the group of vowels that behave similarly are the lax vowels. And the tense vowels are the group of vowels that behave in this other way. And that yeah. what evolved out of this idea of tension and relaxation, ease, less effort, uh, has kind of essentially gone away. That that description is sort of Victorian in its style, and yes. that when they talk about tense and lax, they're no longer really thinking much about um, that effort in the They're mouth. talking
0: phonologically, not phonetically yeah and they're, that's they're the way the about
1: class
0: the, they're
1: thinking about the grouping of of, of yeah. thing, and so it's the class of vowels it's part yeah. of that um you know that uh phonologically when we there tends to be two schools the more british school of looking at the phonology and the uh north american school um and so we get people like william Lebeau who or who are a little bit uh who are the sort of representative uh, North Americans. And uh, I've seen charts where he shows the lax vowel system, essentially Mm -hmm. on, he shows a vowel chart where there's sort of like a a lax vowel system that's tucked inside. So there's sort of a slightly curvy shape uh, uh, sort of uh, set in on the inside of the, the vowel space. And so those are the lax vowels. And so things like chain shifts which are affect all these vowels tend to operate within a system. So the lax vowels would have a chain shift happening. And then the tense vowels would have a chain shift happening in another way. Um, But uh, uh, I I think it's always interesting to think about how these, these have evolved and it's uh, helpful to talk about this idea of tension
0: and and, and lax laxation, <laughs> yeah. And and it's important for for us, and for our students to know that, uh, know which way we're using the term. Uh, we're telling them to relax. Everybody relax. You have too much tension. And now we're saying do a tense vowel. And so we need to be clear with them whether we're talking about muscular tension or this phonological system of tense and lax vowels being separate. And sometimes we're talking about both in the same way uh, these vowels are described as short or long vowels and those systems might overlap Uh, or is this the right use of this term? there's a complementary distribution that is to say uh, this kind of sound only happens in this circumstance Uh, and so the tense vowels happen in certain phonetic circumstances and the lax ones happen in different ones and as you said they behave differently uh as a group yeah i think that's true all right so the dress lexical set let's just briefly talk about that before we go back into the articulation it's i think a way of clarifying what can be a really confusing uh bit of information so I'm scrolling down. (laughs) uh, uh,
1: Talk about the spelling. How would we expect to find words that are in the dress lexical set if we were looking them up?
0: For the most part, they are spelled with an E. And uh, in English spelling, we have rules when uh, the following consonant is then followed by an E or a silent E. There might be a different pronunciation in some words. But... uh, E consonant, step, bet, neck. Uh, there are also EA pronunciation or rather EA spellings, and those really represent a different class historically, uh, that uh, words spelled with an E are short E words, step, bet, neck, and words spelled EA are long E eh words, Uh, The example that I have written down here is that Falstaff rhymes raisins with reasons. That's because R-E-A-S-O-N was pronounced raisins. And there are certainly some accents where that pronunciation remains. Uh, So pronouncing T as te or reason as raisin. Uh, is a, a leftover of that older pronunciation but for most everybody those two merge together into this dress category there are a few that have uh, a different spelling and, and it's a handful like the words any and many have shifted from Annie and Manny to any and many uh, same with Thames and, I'd venture to say that those are the result of the proximity of a nasal consonant raising the vowel position. Mm. Uh, Also, we have uh, friend, lester, berry, and also said and says. I think said and says are examples of a shift because it's such a common word and it's such a not prominent word. Although there are certainly people who say say and say's. Right. Yeah. So for the most part, it's a pretty easy bet and useful for uh, foreign speakers to say, if I see an E, there's a good chance it's pronounced as "e." Eh. Yes. Uh, except for the exceptions. <laughs> so, Good old English. Lots exact. of exceptions. So this... Uh, so the dress category uh, is pronounced, let's deal with its pronunciation and articulation. Uh, in my accent is pronounced, eh, that is to say, my tongue is slightly cupped under the mid position. Uh, and so in, in that sense, I would call it an open mid front unrounded vowel. Uh, mid is where the schwa is, in the middle, and if I were to take that schwa forward uh, I'd probably land in that position. A position that for my accent doesn't really have any candidates in it. I don't really pronounce any words with that E position. I take all of my dress words and they're a little bit lower than that to open mid. And would you say that's the same for your accent?
1: I think so, too. Yeah, I think I would agree with you on that. And, you know, I I think if we recorded that noise that you made by starting at schwa and going forward, yeah. uh, fronter with it, uh, and replayed it to a bunch of North Americans and probably a bunch of people in Britain as well, most of them would say that sound maps onto the dress lexical set.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there's a territory, and uh, I'm going to bring up another lexical set, uh, but only as a, a place marker that we're not going to talk about right now, and that is face, that if I took the word faced, f-a-c-e-d, and the word fest, f-e-s-t, uh, I might distinguish them through length, but also through position. So if I take the length part of it out and say, faced, fest then i've got a difference of diphthong monophthong faced for me is a diphthong and fest is a monophthong however if i were to change that diphthong into a monophthong faced fest there's a i think a really clear distinction of height there yes so the lexical set face we could agree, even if we take the diphthong quality out of it, is a higher lexical set, and dress is a lower lexical set.
1: And it is for almost everybody. Yeah. Right? That even if you're speaking in an accent where dress is much higher than where you and I speak it, then face is going to be above that, if you yeah. will, in the vowel yeah. space. That the the, it'll get squeezed up towards e in the direction of e um, as the uh, dress vowel starts to impinge upon its space so and, if I took dress to dress then face would get closer
0: to feast yeah there's a uh, chain shift in at work there that our phonemes want to stay a little bit apart so that we can distinguish them
1: but it's very rare where we, can, where we, but it's not impossible that there are people where face drops below dress. And so we get feiss. Yep. Yes. And feiss. So that does happen. Um, and uh, basically my assumption is that dress bumped up enough that face had to run for cover and find a spot somewhere else. That, I mean, that's my assumption, it, and I could be completely wrong.
0: In the history, in the Great Vowel Shift, uh, the the a words uh, shifted towards e. So uh, the word c s e e was say, which is a higher position, and it shifted into c, uh, which allowed the word est. E-A-S-T, to shift first towards Est, and then they merge together into East. So there, there are losses, there are mergers as well as splits going on. Mm. Okay, let us go back, uh, because I want to make sure that we make a good map of the territory. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the cardinal vowels, Uh this is an idea that Daniel Jones really systematized and and laid out clearly, uh, and we've talked about it before, and that is phonetically or uh, auditorially equidistant is the term that Lata-Fogate use uses. In fact, I'll give you the quote from Latifoget. Cardinal cardinal vowels 2, 3, and 4 are defined as front vowels that form a series of auditorily equidistant steps between cardinal vowels 1 and 5. So between E and A, we have these equal steps of difference. E, 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 A. And there's there's a non-cardinal one, which is A, which we won't get into right now. So, those first two steps after E, and we've done fleece before, so I can call it fleece. uh, Cardinal vowel two is A. I probably did that a little low. Do you think so? A, A. On an international model, (laughs) A. And then the next one, cardinal vowel three, is A and those are essentially equidistant that is to say uh, the, uh, there's a a platonic ideal there's an archetypical system there uh, which has those uh, positions marked out that doesn't mean that they're somehow right and correct it only means that they're markers on the chart so Cardinal vowel two, a, eh, is in my mind, in my system, associated with the diphthong in face. Uh, cardinal vowel two, or th- rather three, e, eh, is in my mind associated with dress. The symbols attached to those Uh, Cardinal Vowel 2 on the IPA chart has the lowercase e, and Cardinal Vowel 3 has the epsilon.
1: However... And and for those of you who don't know what an epsilon looks like, that's
0: a backwards number 3. Yeah, absolutely. So we can be very authoritative about that. We can say Cardinal Vowel 2 is symbolized in the following way cardinal vowel three is symbolized in the following way uh... but then it gets confusing after that and there are differing authorities about it not just the variety of how people pronounce things but the variety of how people use symbols to describe sounds
1: and And there's a story in a way behind all of that isn't there Um, indeed starts with Daniel Jones, doesn't it? Um, that yeah. he, he made a choice in making his dictionary to uh, use one symbol over another. Um, and th- there were logical reasons for him to do so, as he did. Um, but uh, perhaps his choice was an unfortunate one. I think it also partly goes back to the history of this idea of tense and lax. And the, the, this idea, also the typographical conventions of the time that, uh, for instance, a typewriter had limited uh, array of keyboard characters. Yeah. So uh, there was a tendency for uh, tense and lax vowels to be paired. So E yes. would be, E the fleece vowel, would be paired with I the kit vowel. And those would both be represented by a lowercase i. The fleece representation would have a colon after it to represent its length. And that was a tense version. And the kit vowel would be represented by lowercase i without the colon. Similarly, the face vowel would be the lowercase e with the colon. And
0: the dress vowel would be the lowercase e without the colon. Am I right about that? yeah, I think that's exactly right. And we could say that it's a sort of a typographically conservative approach. That is to say, there are only so many symbols to go around. Uh, and, and that's sort of written into the IPA's uh, principles, uh, that let's not go crazy coming up with a lot of new symbols. Uh, but beyond being typographically conservative, it's also uh, indicative of a, phonological way of thinking uh, to right. say that this, these tense lax systems are uh, a way of organizing our, our thinking and then mapping on top of that the notion of length so that tense vowels are long and lax vowels are short or long vowels are tense and short vowels are lax. Uh, those things are often true but they're not always true I wanted to give a quote here from Daniel Jones and this is I'm re quoting this from a terrific article by Holger Schmidt uh, called the case for the Epsilon symbol in RP dress so here's his quote this is from Jones in uh, his English pronouncing dictionary the 1917 edition Uh, I'll say the name of the symbol lowercase e varies between cardinal epsilon and a point a little above halfway between cardinal lowercase e and cardinal epsilon. Some authors write the sound with the sign epsilon and there is much to be said in favor of this mode of representing it. Uh, Then a little bit after that he writes it must be borne in mind however that the epsilon of the diphthong air has a lower tongue position than the sound written lowercase e. So essentially, what he's saying is that the there's a variation in the pronunciation of essentially dress uh, a a higher form dress, and a lower form dress, but that always in square air there's a lower tongue position, so in order to conveniently mark that distinction jones decided that he was going to use the lowercase e to represent dress sounds and the epsilon to to represent square because he wanted to note and measure that shift in tongue position does that make sense
1: yeah and uh, we have to remember that jones was writing that a long time ago indeed and at that time Face and dress were closer together than they are today. Absolutely. And square and dress were further apart than they are today. Yes. I would argue that many RP speakers today speak face very open with an epsilon in a lot of cases as the first element of their uh, face. So they say face, face, very open. Yeah, um, although
0: I think that you'd have to agree that square is becoming so open as to be almost
1: track Uh, absolutely yeah square and and it's becoming less diphthongized so we're tending to get square um that very open and not centering uh, sound so uh things things change as they always do so uh what has happened is um that jones has established something and because he was the forefather uh the the you know Uh, the person upon whose shoulders so much has been built. I do think that there is a tradition here that's been established, and uh, kind of people don't want to go against Jones in
0: in some some ways. And even people like John Wells uh, argues, uh, I don't think compellingly, but certainly vigorously, for maintaining that uh, symbology. I feel like I ought to go back through the cardinal vowels, the lexical sets, and the symbols for these two sounds that we're talking about. Uh, and probably the articulation will go in there as well. So cardinal vowel two is the higher one. Cardinal vowel three is the lower one. And if I can reproduce them, cardinal vowel two, a. Eh, Cardinal vowel three, eh, and I think that you'd also find that in the recordings we have of Jones doing those sounds, he's doing them pretty much like that. Yes, yeah, so perhaps a little bit more closed. Eh, uh, yes, eh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so that's two and three. Uh, the lexical sets that are associated most frequently with these two sounds are cardinal vowel two is face even if the realization is as a diphthong, the beginning point of that diphthong is at cardinal vowel two, and dress is cardinal vowel three. Are we safe so far? So far, so good. Now, the symbols also seem to go, and this is where we get a bit dodgy. When transcribing face, we definitely use the lowercase e in most cases. That's, unless we're trying to describe something very different. Uh, most phoneticians use the lowercase e to go along with cardinal vowel 2 and to represent face. Yes. For cardinal vowel 3 which is where dress lives uh, you At will often... S- in many of North American and <laughs> southern British accents, yes. Exactly, so cardinal vowel 3 is represented on the IPA chart with the epsilon. The difficulty comes when people like Wells uh, or really most people who do pronouncing dictionaries using the IPA, they use lowercase e to represent dress.
1: And they use it as the first element in face.
0: Indeed. And if you corner them and say, are you saying that uh, people who say Uh, that that a standard British speaker says face and dress with exactly the same sound, they'll say, no, 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 I'm using a simplified version of the IPA for foreign language speakers and for, for a dictionary. And that, I think, is a compelling argument.
1: And I think we have to always remind ourselves, I think, as people who work with dialects and with actors, that there is a tendency to look at pronouncing dictionaries and say, this is the way it's pronounced. Yeah. And what really the dictionary is saying is, this is the lexical sets to which those segments belong. Exactly. And so This is the
0: territory.
1: Exactly. And so it's about saying, well, it can be said with this vowel if the reference accent you're referring to uses that vowel quality for that lexical set. But if it's If it's a different accent that uses a different vowel quality for that lexical set, then that that pronouncing dictionary entry is still valid. It's just mapping onto a different phonetic realization of that phonological representation.
0: So for people teaching accents, I think it's very important to... Uh, match the symbols to the cardinal vowel positions so that everybody has a clear pathway, and so that you can have a, a reference point. And by taking the lowercase e and making it serve such a broad territory, that becomes less useful for a student of phonetics for accents, it seems to me. Or at least you could say that a student of accents needs to be aware of how those symbols are being used, whether they're being used to represent a lexical set or whether they're representing a cardinal vowel position. In English practice, uh, now this is true of Wells, of the phonologists' use of phonetics and the lexicographers' use of phonetics, Pronouncing dictionaries generally use that lowercase e to represent dress and only use the epsilon to represent square uh, following Jones. Uh, It's also true that many American drama schools use exactly the same system. Uh, Mm -hmm. That is to say, they use the same symbols. They use a lowercase e to represent dress and an epsilon to represent square
1: or the beginning of square
0: yes exactly so my argument stands that if you're teaching people accents you're uh, you'd better give them a system that's sort of reliable and intelligible and this system the one represented by by Wells uh, or Jones or Skinner is unintelligible or or potentially confusing Because a student who walks into the room uh, saying this, I hear dress and square, I get how those are the same. I don't see how dress and face are the same. Uh, The overlapping areas of those realizations uh, cause some confusion. And also using the sounds you end up if you treat the phonological approach as a phonetic approach you end up getting people confused about how to use the tool and they end up using it i I imagine all these students learning this system holding the wrong end of the hammer trying to get a nail pounded in and they're justifiably understandably confused
1: yeah i think it does breed uh, frustration and frustration breeds contempt and contempt breeds no use of it
0: um and yes the other thing that frustration or cognitive dissonance breeds is is mindless acquiescence and so we do have uh we do get this same system re-taught in a way that actually doesn't contain the understanding of why it's that way so i'm sure that edith skinner and william tilly Uh, understood. In fact, in Skinner's early notebooks, the lowercase e used for dress was used with a little lowering symbol underneath it. So, she surely understood what was happening phonetically. But in the transmission of that system, uh, I really haven't heard a lot of people trained under that system really able to explain how it's being used. Uh, certainly there are some I think probably uh, I shouldn't name people by name but uh, Gary Logan I think is really clear about this in his uh, Shakespeare book his Shakespeare pronouncing book but in
1: his Shakespeare pronouncing book uh, the, he really does flip the, the expectation of what the epsilon refers to and what the lowercase e refers to so he will refer to yeah. pronunciations of French words that have a cardinal two vowel an a vowel that i would normally represent with a lowercase he 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 represents those with an epsilon um so it, there is a kind and of a reversal that's happening for some teachers yeah
0: you this. were just explaining this to me and i i have to confess that i didn't spend the time listening to skinner tapes that you did so i was really not aware of this confusion yeah, a, Can it, you explain yeah sure
1: it? that um, the there was a clear idea that the air diphthong uh, should be mapped as it is in the IPA standard map. So uh, we see the vowels on the front of the uh, vowel chart going e, e, and then the next symbol is a lowercase e, and the next symbol is an epsilon. Uh,
0: the lower... And there, are they in the cardinal two and cardinal three positions they are. on the chart? They are. Um, and uh but the
1: epsilon is reserved only for square words um and uh but frequently the square words are actually pronounced with a more closed pronunciation in skinner tradition not all square words but many of them so a word like dairy d-a-i-r-y as opposed to the place in ireland uh, dairy gets uh, a much more cardinal to a kind of pronunciation um, and that's written with an epsilon so there, it's, uh as it was taught to me uh, the phrase Lee is telling airy Anne's answer so airy uh, is clearly airy not airy um, <laughs> It is more closed, not more open Um, and but it's laid out in their their chart as being more open, not more close. So it's confusing ultimately. Um, And if if you look at the chart and then you hear the models on the recordings, you your head explodes a little bit.
0: Uh, Well, here's the thing. And this is something this is my challenge to all teachers of phonetics you cannot simply you need to triangulate you can't simply say these words are mapped to this pronunciation or rather to this transcription you can't say dress is transcribed this way Uh, you have to say the cardinal vowel position what's represented is this articulation and uh, the sound that you're hearing is this and here are some words, the lexical set, here are some words that it might occur in. And if you don't, you get this sort of like unmooring that uh, people see the symbol and they have it associated with the lexical set and they make that connection, but their own pronunciation varies and, and then we're lost. If, if we're not really making sure what we're talking about, when we're talking about it, uh, it can get very confusing.
1: And I think as our students are working their way through uh, figuring out how vowel symbols map onto the lexical sets that they have in their own mind, they have to be able to go, okay, this I'm in, I'm different than what many of my classmates do, so that they're beginning to identify. You know, I I do say. Uh, dress in a unique way so i might have a, a student in canada who says i say dress pretty much like everybody else does but when i have a g afterwards i say egg and yeah i'm a freak i guess uh <laughs> and that's usually their first response is what what happened to me or why is why doesn't anybody else say it this way Egg. it's supposed to be a face word isn't it um, and they they right. they have a moment of uh, what? Why is the book wrong? Um, why is exactly the wrong? there's
0: cognitive dissonance as these differing systems are differently configured, and and that's a terrific learning opportunity. But if you confuse, if you mush together two ideas, then you've really lost something and. And you've pr- provided students no way out of their cognitive dissonance, which is unfortunate. Right. And and this is one where, I, this is my argument for using the epsilon in my transcription of really most versions of dress in English. I would say even RP dress, old-fashioned RP dress, is just a high epsilon. I mean, you could describe it as a low lowercase e. Right. Uh, but it seems to me using the lowercase e for everything from cardinal vowel two down to cardinal vowel three uh, is is much more confusing than simple.
1: Mm. Yes, I mean, ultimately, as a tool, using diacritics, for instance, if, if we allow ourselves epsilon with a raising mark and lowercase e with a lowering mark or an opening mark uh, we are giving ourselves two more gradations Um, and i i don't know that most people can
0: be more granular granular than that there's no reason to be i I just wanted to point out that on wikipedia the the foul chart they've got there has an additional mid symbol. So we have the close mid and the open mid uh, cardinal vowel two and three and uh, they've put a symbol there in the mid position oh. and what they've used is the lowercase e with a lowering symbol on it. Mm. Uh, and and that's really interesting to me because that we've long recognized in English that that's a a realization that occurs for dress that is to say a lowered cardinal vowel too, a lowered lowercase e uh, and it's very rare indeed for an actual unlowered eps, uh, lowercase e to be the realization of dress for any English speaker
1: I just want to talk briefly about um, the lowercase e in other languages um yeah absolutely because for many languages they don't have the wealth of vowels that we do Um, if we think of something like italian with its five vowels uh um, classic italian singing you do your consonant tied onto a vowel um and that that five vowel progression is very common in classical singing and in other languages japanese also has five vowels where does a sit for those vowels well somewhere around cardinal 2 and there are other languages that have five vowels where they use the lowercase e as one of those five vowels and the realization of that Front vowel is more of an eh sound. Do they need to use epsilon for that? Typically, what phoneticians describing a language that only has five vowels, they will map whatever that vowel is, wherever it's realized, onto the simplest vowel shape, which is the lowercase e. It's on every keyboard. Why come up with something else? Yeah. And so there are, uh, if you go through, Uh, for instance, the audio files that are attached to the handbook of the IPA, and you collect all of the sample words that are tied to uh, one vowel symbol. So, for instance, you find all the instances where the lowercase e is used to represent a phoneme in a language. Probably, if you use lowercase e, you'd probably get about 30 or 40 of them. Uh, They wouldn't be all the same. There would be quite a broad range of articulation for that sound. Um, and that's because each language essentially maps it onto what it is for them. And so, you know, for instance, I had a, a graduate student who had studied phonetics in Germany. And mm-hmm. we were looking at the open O symbol. And I was saying, oh, and Jesus going, no, oh, And I'm saying, oh, (laughs) and she's saying, no, (laughs) that symbol is oh. And essentially what I would map as a turnscript A, she mapped as an open O. And that's the German tradition because it fits German phonology that they've used IPA symbols to map sounds to German phonology. And so the realization of that symbol in Germany is different than the realization of it in the English-speaking world
0: um, so and, and that's the way which uh, a sort of absolutist grid of phonetics really helps us that's where cardinal vowels really help us yes. to to say okay yes your realization is there and we can make a chart of where your idea of that sound lives but we really ought to make sure we know where it is in relationship to the markers
1: yeah and so typically in a written document if, if uh, we look at that uh, journal article that you referred to before about the representation of dress with the lowercase e um, they they will be writing the representation of the phoneme in slanted brackets and the phonetical re- Phonetic realization which refers essentially back to those cardinal vowels in square brackets. Yes, is that true? Yeah Uh, Wait, say it to me again that when they talk about the phonological Representation of it. They'll use the forward slash to show that it's the phonological representation of it and then they'll be more precise about the actual phonetic realization of it by putting the symbol within square brackets so sometimes you see yeah, these very confusing things. Well, you'll see forward slash lowercase e forward slash is square bracket ash square bracket. <laughs> and if you don't get that under that that principle, that f- phonologically this symbol that's associated with this lexical set is well, and it,
0: it gets more confusing when phoneticians themselves don't make those distinctions uh, you were talking about German and I was looking at the German use of eh and it, it seems according to Wikipedia that there is a four-way distinction, phon- uh, phonemic distinction between short a, eh, long a, eh, short e, eh, and long eh but when you actually start to look at how people say these things, these are sort of conceptual distinctions, not really uh, spoken distinctions. So, but again, there's, there's sort of like more... tense and lax, that the long exactly. and
1: short form have to do with phonological rules of where these vowels appear. And so they they write them out as four different versions, but in many people's heads, I think they have A and E, and it's long because this consonant is after it, or it's short because this other consonant is after it. Exactly. Uh, And they don't really equate them as being different from each
0: other. And this, again, this is why complementary distribution is an important concept, that uh, it allows you to say that... uh, Well, here, I can break down complementary distribution better. Complementary is it has a complement. It's together with. And so that sounds always with that sound. And that sounds always with that sound. So I don't have to have a conceptual rule about it. It'll just happen that way.
1: Yeah.
0: Or sometimes the conceptual rules are, bear no strong relationship to the way things are actually pronounced. All right. I believe we've wandered off the road here. And I want to take a look here at uh, what things we haven't covered. Okay. I think that we've covered and I hope added some clarity to the very, very confusing history of the use of the symbols and the actual pronunciation uh, of cardinal vowel two and three. I think it might be interesting to talk specifically about dress and talk about some of the variations in pronunciation around the world in in English speakers. And I suppose the first one is this sort of old-fashioned RP uh, which has a very high dress. Generally speaking, a short but tense dress, would you say?
1: Uh, Certainly more close. Um, Dress. Dress. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
0: Then the historical shift of dress has been lowering in RP. So dress, 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 dress. And in Cockney, dress certainly much more open than old-fashioned RP. In American English, I avoided the term general American, in lots of American English, dress has always been pretty much in the position of cardinal vowel three. And I'd say, I'll make that more general and say that's North American Mm -hmm. English. There has been a shift, uh, and I've certainly noticed this in California, uh, even though it's it's a northern cities shift, I suppose, towards a more open dress. Actually, so we should talk a... about
1: northern cities in a second, but California yes, and Canada good... actually share this thing that dress is getting this open. opening, heading towards the turf of yeah. trap.
0: Yeah, that's a a good distinction. Uh so we'll save uh northern cities. So let's I don't know if whether it's a coastal thing, it's all through Canada that we have this opening of dress. Yes. Um it
1: isn't true in Atlantic Canada. Um but Atlantic right. Canada is really a world to itself. Um but pretty hmm. much from Montreal to Vancouver, um, we have this uh uh tendency for Eh, to get more and more open Um, so that's what I said I said uh,
0: that she said that's ubiquitous in California um, and I've heard it in places like Cincinnati and it seems to be almost a cultural accent characteristic that it's the sound of the young Um,
1: well the younger people change that's for sure um, yeah, but uh, you know, I, I think I've found my own um, eh, realization my own dress words are more open here
0: than they are elsewhere. So um, yeah, it, I want to try an experiment actually. I have this list of dress words. I, my suspicion is that the opening of dress is a subcategory of dress that it's not the same on all words. So I'm going to conjure up my Californian, and I'm going to, like, go through some words here. Step, bet, knack, fetch, jeff, mess, ooh, that one sounded wrong. Mesh, ebb, bed, egg, edge, rev, fez. I seem to be hitting them all pretty much in the same place. Do you hear any distinctions there?
1: Um, well, um... In Canada, yeah. certainly ones that are followed by velars tend to go the opposite direction. So we do get ache mm-hmm. and uh, things like that. Uh, but hemp, tent, uh, theft, threat, sweat.
0: Maybe a post L would make it more extreme health realm. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So so I my intuition on that is not being borne out. That, that there's It seems to be... And again, this isn't my own accent, but one that I'm trying to intuit. A general opening of dress. Yes. And the only counterforce there is the voiced velars afterwards. So, egg.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: There's certainly that effect uh, in other American accents, egg and measure, or we talked about this with trap that bag can move towards big as well but generally speaking uh, I I haven't seen this mapped out where this opening occurs but I think it's pretty widely distributed in the West of the United States and it sounds like even greater portion of Canada and It also seems to be a a younger speaker feature, so it's something that's on the rise. So
1: we have all three, kit, dress, and trap, generally are dropping down. The exception for trap for us is uh, trap followed by nasal, which does the air thing that we've discussed before. Um, uh, So generally it's it's opening. Um, I think people tend to assume that... um, things that because there's a merger with the the uh, bath lexical set that people assume that our bath is much more open and it's not much more open it it is perhaps more open but it's not bath we're certainly not getting that kind of realization bath bath um but uh uh the northern city shift is going the other direction yeah um and uh Uh, Again, we tend to get that kind of breaking diphthongal kind of quality of "air" uh, for the the trap sound, Um, and the dress tends to be a little bit more closed. Uh, But dress tends to bump into kit, and so goes mid-central, and so you get this sort of dress. Uh, She she bought a red dress. Yeah.
0: Yeah, this is one that I see described, and I have to say that Labov and the Atlas of North American English uh, has a confusing phonetic system. Yes. Uh, But for people who would say trap, I hear a mid-centralizing, but not much raising, on step, bed, neck, fetch, jeff. In fact, it seems more open uh, that the it's maybe not even mid-centralizing, but centralizing and lowering step that neck. You know,
1: sometimes I think that the phonologists are so bent on chain shifts that they yeah. they like to make their charts and move things around. Um, and that, uh, that they're trying to make it fit their model as opposed to make their model fit what they're hearing. Um, I, I guess that's a pretty uh, awful uh, indictment of that. But,
0: uh, well, our, our just that, aren't uh, there's no way of indicating saying. how strong that shift is. Yes. So uh, they can put it on a list of changes uh, without indicating whether it's an extreme change or not but it doesn't seem like an extreme change to me. Uh, in fact, it falls into the category that I would ascribe to oral posture, that it's one of those shifts in sound that is going to happen because your mouth is in a certain position, um, not because the whole category of, of sounds has shifted in some major way. So it, it, I'd certainly hear this, uh, but it doesn't seem like a very strong effect to me. Granted. But it's described by by Wells uh on his blog uh and Labov as a shift towards a a mid central or an open mid central. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So step would become stop. step. And that seems to me to have uh, broken, it's gone over some boundary there. Uh, now, Labov is very fond of uh, playing isolated sound samples and then uh, quizzing the audience on what word they've heard. Uh, and so the, the example that he uses is socks in this northern cities area, sounding like sax, uh i'm trying to think if he's got one of these words in there that i guess what i'm saying is that if you listen to the word in isolation it might seem very very different but if you listen to it in the stream of conversation it wouldn't sound as different
1: right. uh because with right. the shift comes oral posture change
0: exactly um
1: so and and your your ear kind of adjusts as the, the chain rotates Around the center of the chart, your kind of your ear does this little thing where you compensate. You go, okay, yeah. I know where I know where the north is, even though it's pointing east.
0: Um, okay, yeah. so there's two other effects in at least in in American English in in the South. Uh, there's what you could call breaking or or shading, uh, and that is to say that depending on the consonant following the vowel can be sort of adjusted and shifted, that's what shading is and uh, breaking is when a monophthong shifts into a diphthong. So let's take the word step step step. I'm not doing much breaking there. Uh, Bet not so much, but bad. I might actually make a triphthong, bayed, uh, or head. And that is not the historical, the, I, I don't want to make it seem like the spelling has anything to do with it. It's really the consonant context. And
1: to some degree, uh, uh, it seems to me that the degree of importance of the word. Within the con- it, It's a mode of emphasis, so in the same way that we can use pitch and loudness and length as ways of e- emphasizing a word, we can also add uh, what typically uh, dialect coaches call lilt to certain words, so that that emphasis, mm-hmm. by greater breaking of that word, uh, 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 it exaggerates the word. Uh, Get in your you yeah. know so the the bed is wet uh if i'm emphasizing the word wet the word bed could go flying by with a pretty uh straight eh sound but if i'm going to emphasize it the bed is wet I'm, i could put quite a bit of breaking onto that
0: that's a great example too because the breaking is only available to bed it's not really available to wet yeah. if i were to stress that word The bed is way out, doesn't work. Uh, And so that's why the consonant context has some influence on it. All right, terrific. So we've got breaking and to a certain degree shading there as well. And I I suppose shading is what makes bed different than wet. Right. Uh, The consonant context has an influence.
1: So if we're in the South, we have to go to the land of pin and
0: pen. Yes, indeed. There's our next one. And and that is really a prime example of shading. That is to say, the following consonant, if it's a nasal, has a very strong effect on the vowel quality.
1: Yeah, so then the, when when it's followed by a nasal eh raises to pin. But pin also yeah. changes, right? With the kit set. So they yes. are not homophones. Someone who says pin for a pen does not say pin for the thing you get poked with. Um, Although they can be very, very close. They can be very close. But there is a distinction, particularly yeah. in emphasized forms, right? A pin and a pin uh, that there's breaking on the pointy thing that pokes you uh, and that you use for sewing. Um, so, exactly. straight, straight pin and a, what's the other one, a writing pin, is that what they... Uh, ink, ink pin. pin, right, to, to
0: differentiate the two. Right, so there are two things there. One, one is that uh, the you sometimes, this is an argument for them being fairly close in in realization for some people, some speakers use a different word to help distinguish between a straight pen and an ink pen. But you're also right that if you emphasize the word at all, you hear a different effect happening. Right. The straight pen uh, is a pen, and so it's a kit word and more available to breaking. And an ink pen is a pen and is less available for breaking. Right. So they haven't completely merged. I think that's an important thing. Although I have to say that for for some of my students who have uh, a version of this merger, which is, uh, sorry, less pronounced, uh, less strong, uh, I, I do find that they have a very hard time distinguishing, knowing which one to use. And they'll sometimes overcorrect. And so they'll they'll take other i sounds and they'll move them, they'll take kit sounds and turn them into dress sounds in their mission to undo that that feature. So they'll say things like meshin. Exactly, exactly. Because really, it's a wonderful example of how these are are unconscious rules that we're using, that nobody consciously says I'm going to pronounce that letter. They say, it's a pen. Uh, they they follow the phonological rules that are in their system. And so an actor who does that needs to, to really relearn that distinction. They need to be able to apply some sort of rule and say, if it's an E followed by an N, I need to remember to pronounce it with my dress words, not with my kit words. And this can be really resistant to change this particular uh, habit of pronunciation.
1: Yeah, so I think it's a pattern that is, uh, in terms of the muscularity of the articulation, it's, uh, it's very closed. Um, and so that subtle difference between it and e, eh uh, yeah. it's about releasing your jaw and opening, finding more space Um, And that can be a challenging process of letting go and opening it up.
0: Um, And because uh, we're moving from nasal to non-nasal sounds is a difficult activity already, most of us do a little pre-articulation of our nasals anyway, as we talked about in the nasals episode. And so that is at work as well, uh, pushing me towards turning my PEN into PIN. Uh all right have we covered that one I think we have There was an interesting thing in in Daniel Jones I was uh, looking at his pronunciation of English uh and he has these uh distinctions uh standard pronunciation northern English and London and by London I think we would probably say cockney <coughs> And he notes this particular pronunciation in London that I want to pull out here. Uh, where the heck is it? Yeah, it is, eh, with a little i, bade, bade, and and that really does strike me as a sort of old-fashioned Cockney. Yes. Uh, My friend, said. Said is a bad example because some people retain the say sound in it. Waint. Waint, yeah. So I'd say that this is less common these days, but it's certainly a feature. And it's an interesting sort of uh, diphthongizing of, of that monophthong. Anything else on our list? I think that we had some discussion of the way these sounds happen in foreign languages.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, because I know French, um, it's kind of fun to look at the sort of the turf in French. Um, okay. That we have A and E pretty clearly. Uh, the E, there's a long version of E that's written with the simple flex accent of it. <laughs> They also have uh, both a nasalized version of it eh? mm-hmm. and they have a rounded version of it. Eh? Um, so th- that those uh, can be helpful steps in, in because uh, French is the the other national language in Canada. Uh, a lot of my students have very good French, and so I can use that as a way into exploring um, sounds that are uh, variations on what the English. Side of their brain understands, so that that's kind of good to to look at. I also have uh, um, uh, kids in my class from uh, parts of Atlantic Canada, including um, uh, from uh, Newfoundland, and they're quite familiar with Newfoundland English, and so there are um, a, you know some differences that happen. So that we get a a, a more, um, uh, raised sound. So things like "haid" and page and engine and bench in Newfoundland, uh, that sort of very tight kind of Newfoundland sound, Mm -hmm. uh, they, those kind of variations can be helpful to me to get people to think about the differences. Um, I, I kind of enjoyed I, I found a new book I found it through Google Books called A Handbook of Varieties of English oh yeah and uh, do you know this this book there's a two volume set yeah. phonology is the first volume and the second one is morphology um, yeah. and uh, it's uh, it's published by uh, what do they name William de Gruyter, the German publishers it,
0: it, yes the really expensive yeah, publishers $800 for this <laughs> book
1: um, but it's got a lot of really great stuff in terms of if you want a kind of an overview of uh, Englishes around the world and uh, one that I found interesting because you can search Google Books for uh, you, you grab the book and then you search the word dress in the handbook of varieties of English and uh, it comes up with some really unusual Englishes like Cameroon English in Africa and they do an interesting thing with weak vowels. So uh, the, the ed ending in a word like painted mm-hmm. uh, is actually elevated to a dress vowel. So we get painted and words like actress and princess, those what we think of as suffixes get uh, realized as full
0: sort of spelling
1: pronunciations.
0: Well, and there's certainly, it, that's simply countering the English tendency to reduce unstressed syllables. So vowels that aren't stressed shift towards schwa, and if you don't do that, even if you unstress it, it sounds peculiar to an English speaker's ear, I guess not to a Cameroon English speaker.
1: Yeah, and in a way, it's uh, about thinking about how an, a- what what we used to call an accent, uh, people who, speaking English with a coming from another language. They don't think of what we think of as weak syllables as being weak. Um, And so they're mapping it onto those strong vowels and it's generally going to be related to some spelling tradition. So if it's spelled with an E, it's likely to get a a dress vowel realization. If it's spelled with an A, it's likely to get an a vowel. So uh, yeah, uh, a word like cognate or that's a bad example because it goes to cognate, Uh, but, um, uh, Uh, insatiate, insatiate. Yeah, it's going to go Go to to (laughs) insatiate. Uh, yeah, they're going to go to those A versions instead of an e version. Um, Uh,
0: the, I, I wanted to ask you a question about French because I, I don't really have any French except for one semester in high school. Okay. Wikipedia tells me that there's a distinction between long and short versions of epsilon, so that in addition to the distinction between uh, cardinal vowel 2 and cardinal vowel 3, that cardinal vowel 3 has a long and short distinction. Is that right?
1: Um, Sure. Again, it's phonological that certain, you know, if it's spelled a certain way, if there's a consonant that follows it, it's going to get greater long length so uh for instance um uh I, I don't think there's going to be a situation where we're going to get um like mem written without a circle flex and mem which is long because is written with a circle flex
0: um is it partially because there's some complementary distribution that you basically the, the long version and the short version happen in different contexts.
1: Well, the, for instance, uh, on the Wikipedia page, they contrast the words uh, se and the word fet. Uh, mm-hmm. Se, he knows, uh, s a i t, and uh, fet. Now, fet is uh, f e circumflex, t e. And se, he knows the T is silent. In FET, the T mm-hmm. is not silent. And so the E is longer. Um, it, unfortunately, I learned my in, my French in Canada, so I tend to have a French-Canadian accent, so I'm much more likely to raise FET to "fight," uh, mm. uh, Make it a, more of a diphthong sound. Um, but uh, that's that's just a regional accent um typically i think uh globally so in terms of we think of fet as being a long longer vowel than set
0: and and there isn't a, a minimal pair in which uh, the words are exactly the same except for the la- I don't believe so no all right uh, I had this I was trying to find this in Swedish that doesn't mean and, that they uh, don't exist
1: right then we have vowels that we can't create minimal pairs for in English um, because that mm-hmm.
0: that that's just not how it works right we can't they could be perceptual minimal pairs that the speakers of that language can hear the difference right. be- between them uh, my wife was telling me since she's learning Swedish right now that there's a a difference between uh, cardinal vowel two and cardinal vowel three in Swedish. Then uh, she gave me the example of the word for apartment, which I'm going to butcher now. Uh, lägenhet, or is it Lägenhet? I think that's what it is. Uh, but when I went to the Wikipedia page to listen to them, I found that the realizations of those phonemes were not as indicated by the phonetics. They were diphthongized. They were really something quite different. And that's another reminder that the way linguists might talk about the phonology or even the way a a speaker of a language conceptualizes the sounds of their language might not exactly match the uh, phonetic transcription Mm -hmm. that we might want to use. So there's the the phonological there's the way we think about how sounds are different and then there's the phonetic which is we hope as accurate as possible a description of the articulation involved
1: yeah i mean looking at the swedish phonology page on wikipedia uh, the the epsilon and the lengthened epsilon are shown on a vowel chart as being fairly far apart whereas the yes. lowercase e and the epsilon on its own are shown as actually being very close to one another.
0: Um, In, indeed. And because they're distinct, then th- there must be some phonological reason why it, they're understood as as distinct sounds. Yeah. There are three different sounds that you would expect to find. Uh, and it, it's... That's why these charts are so very interesting. And, and a lot of the phonology pages on... Uh, languages in Wikipedia will show uh, an IPA handbook style chart where you can see the symbol that is to say the symbol representing the phoneme placed somewhere specifically on the chart that is representing a particular uh, pronunciation Uh, and in this case Swedish looks like it's really clumped up in the front yes Uh, it's also got an awful lot of rounding and that's a really interesting way to start thinking about the way uh, you can sort of visualize there what it feels like to speak that language. All right, we've gone off again. So <laughs> have we covered the materials we have promised to cover? Um,
1: I think we have, you know. Uh, we, we didn't, We what we didn't do is we didn't
0: really wander off much into face and square. which That's so clever because I think that... Uh, for future episodes, we haven't done a single diphthong yet, and so face is a good candidate for that, and then we haven't done any of the centering diphthongs, so square would be terrific for that uh we We have yet to talk about R so it may be a while before we get to that <laughs> one but i would I would say we can promise now that in the square episode we'll also talk about uh the distinction between Mary, Mary. And Mary I promise <laughs> So uh, You know what else I didn't do at the beginning of this episode Is I didn't say what number it is And I think I can't recall Is it 25?
1: I think that is right Just give me a second So this is I our can, silver anniversary,
0: Eric it um, 25 <laughs> it, It's a a marker. We should celebrate 25 episodes, I think. It
1: is 25. Silver
0: anniversary. Excellent. So, uh, we will be back next time with episode 26 and, uh, we will decide what it's going to be about, but we can say it's going to be about a consonant.
1: Yes. I I suspect Uh, that we have to do laterals.
0: Ah, that's a good one. Uh, we'll come back to that. And, uh, Anything else, Eric, before we sign off today?
1: Well, we want to remind people that if they want to write to us, that they can do so at glossonomia at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, we love it if people go to the iTunes website and give us some feedback. You know, I just realized that uh, being in Canada, on the Canadian Mm -hmm. iTunes website, I don't get the American comments. I was shocked. How to strange. See that. I was shocked. Uh, and possibly we have comments on the UK site that I've never seen either. Um, so I don't know how to internationalize our comments. Um, if someone did know how to do that, <laughs> they, that would be great. Um, but if you're in a well, country I... other than the US and you want to write us a little review, we would love it. We would love another review in the US. That's a good way for people to find us
0: through IT. Indeed. Excellent. Well, until next time, Eric, it's always pleasant. Always,
1: always pleasant.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, may you have a happy accent week. Um, and
0: uh, you have some time, actually, before you're back to work uh, teaching. Uh, I am, but I am going to be spending that time in Cincinnati working on a show at the Cincinnati Playhouse. So... Uh, th- it may be a little while before we get to that next episode. Okay, good to know. Good to know. I, I don't start
1: in my classes until after Labor Day, and you, I think you have a couple of weeks before, after Labor Day, Indeed. before your classes begin again, too. Uh, so it may be a little while before we get to episode 26. So thank you, audience, and uh, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.